Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm Dan Levesey, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, I'll be talking to Rebecca Earl about her recent book, The Body of the Conquistador, Food, Race, and the Colonial Experience in Spanish America, 1492 to 1700. Uh, Rebecca Earl, thanks for joining me. It's a great pleasure. Uh, I wonder if you can start off uh, uh, maybe just telling us a little bit about yourself, um, maybe a very short sense about how you got to this field and then uh, how you came out of this project. Well, my, my route to the project was a little bit indirect. I didn't start as talking of anything. You started as a small child. But when I first came to Britain, as my voice perhaps indicates, I'm from the United States originally, but now I live here in Britain. When I first came, I wasn't studying history at all. I was studying mathematics. And by a series of sort of sideways moves, I ended up beginning to work on a very specific topic in a very specific region, the Wars of Independence, Colombia, and then that sort of expanded outward to projects that were a bit more comparative, that were looking kind of at Latin America as a whole, or Spanish America in the 19th century, and I got interested in questions of identity and nationhood and culture more generally. And then with this project, the, the, the book that we're talking about, I, I then expanded out further to look not just at uh, one century, but to look at hundreds of years and to look across Spanish America. And so I suppose that my career has been sort of a process of, of, of widening out from from more specific topics to, to broader and broader ones. And food, I suppose, is as broad a topic as you could possibly imagine. <laughs> Quite a bit narrow, though, too, in a way. So uh, that's actually a really great uh, um, maybe second question is, is this issue of food has been building in terms of the scholarship, people studying food ways. Um, and I wonder if you could just so, sort of talk almost philosophically about what you think food brings to historical scholarship as a method of study. I think that what it's really good at doing is bringing together very big, unwieldy topics like colonialism or nationalism and topics that are that are I mean, particularly that have an ideological component and that you can study in a rather abstract way but then you think okay well how did that work in people's lives what food allows you to do is to connect these broad processes globalization you know any of these broad things to very concrete lived experiences in individuals people's lives i think that's one of the things that food is really good at doing it's also something that allows you to make interesting comparisons across time and space because god willing everybody eats so it's an absolutely universal human activity which means that it's been endowed with enormous cultural significance but that significance varies from culture to culture so it's a sort of constant in human existence at the same time that it can be very culturally specific and can allow sort of openings into the features of the individual culture at the same time as it allows comparison. Yeah, and I think there, you make a good case that there's something lost when some of those physical attributes aren't really discussed when you're, when you're going through a topic like imperialism and colonialism, that those are pretty central parts of the ways that negotiations occur between, say, the Spanish and the indigenous populations. Um, we, let's just kind of start at the beginning then in terms of uh, uh, what your focus is with this book. Um, can you talk about sort of the European origins, first of all, in terms of people, how, how the Spanish in particular thought about food um, and what kind of associations they had between food, health and bodily function before colonization even started? Yeah, I, mean, I think that was in some ways the thing that I found 
most fundamental in a way to this project was thinking about how food was really central to how people in Western Europe, people in Spain, for instance, thought not just about themselves as kind of cultural beings, but actually as physical beings as well. So I'll try to explain what I mean about that and, and then try to answer your question a little bit. That a lot of the scholarship on food, there's huge amounts of scholarship on food, as you said, the topic is is vast, that looks at how food is symbolic of people's identities. It's a place where national identity or religious identity or whatever is sort of represented and symbolized. And there's also a, a sort of a different body of scholarship on how food is a biological imperative, as, as I said. And what I was sort of interested in was trying to bring those two things together and think about how people in early modern Spain thought about food not just as a symbol of who they thought they were, but also as something that made them who they were in a physical sense. And to do that, I needed to, to understand more about how people well thought about their bodies and how they operated in general, not just in terms of food. And I think the crucial thing that shaped how people in Spain in the 16th century thought about their bodies, which also would have linked them to how people in England in the same period or Germany, you know, or I mean, this is a Western, a pan-European, actually, um, way of thinking about the body, was one that went back to ancient Greece and the ancient Islamic world. There's a very long-standing idea that people, about how bodies operated that, that persisted for really millennia and, and that were fundamental. And they, they really worked like this. So the, the idea was that your body, which is individual to you, is shaped by the humors that circulate through it. So your body is shaped by these different fluids, blood, bile, etc., that circulate through your body and that make you who you are, both in terms of how you look and also in terms of how you behave. So your appearance and your behavior are not really separate things. They're kind of linked together. And people who have a huge amount of phlegm, for example, which is one of the humors, um, are likely to be sort of pale and puffy, phlegmatic, so this language lives on. And had a particular character and a particular appearance. And overall, the terms for this, for your combined appearance and your character, was the complexion or the temperament, which meant this sort of this holistic understanding of you as a person. And so that's that was where, who you of the humors in your body. So, so where do the humors come from? And in part, you inherited them from your parents. So there was a kind of model of heredity that if your parents were both caloric or what you know had a, had a sanguine temperament you would probably be sanguine all things being equal but these humors were never stable and all sorts of things that you did in your life shaped and affected the balance of humors in your body so just the aging process was likely to dry your body out a bit you'd get a bit drier which would change your humoral balance this was what aging was how it was conceptualized the process of getting colder and drier over your lifetime. And other external forces could also affect the balance of humors. And there were sort of six main things that were believed to do this. And food was one of these six things, along with the levels of exercise that you took, your mental state. So interestingly, your mental state was sort of considered an external force that might affect your humors. And how your, um, what do you call it, your 
you know, digestion and excretion in general, what went in and out of your body, those things affected your humoral balance, the climate that you lived in, all of these things shaped the humoral balance and, and could alter it in different ways. So you might start out with a particular complexion or temperament, but over your lifetime, you might end up with a rather different one. And even the qualities that were passed on from parent to child might affect, might be affected by what the parents had recently been eating before conceiving you. So this humoral body is very porous. It's in sort of dialogue with its environment all the time. So I was quite interested in that. And I was sort of reading about that. And what this meant was that, among other things, what you ate had a physical effect on your body. It wasn't just a sort of, you know, cultural attribute. It was that. It was a cultural attribute. But it also had this very concrete physical effect. So given that that was the case, I then was interested in thinking about how the early modern Europeans used those ideas to make sense of physical world. How did these ideas shape how Europeans responded to people who looked differently from themselves, whether in Europe or, or anywhere else? But the one other thing to say then about this sort of humoral, I suppose, is that it was absolutely not an idea that was just embraced by members of the learned elite. And that was one of the other things I was sort of interested in looking at. This was a certainly an idea that this was what was taught in medical schools. This is what doctors based their treatments on. But it was also a widespread vernacular idea that all kinds of people drew upon to make sense of their own, their own bodies, really. So this wasn't an elite discourse. This was a kind of vernacular discourse that you can find reflected in all sorts of different sites. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the things that you mentioned is that uh, it has this very strong political importance during the Reconquista. And I think that ties in a lot with what you're trying to show about how food is used in the colonial setting. So could you talk a little bit about uh, what happens in the Reconquista, or at least how those issues around food have a, a very strong political dimension in terms of the way people are conceptualizing difference? Yeah. So there's a, it's, it's, well known, I mean, scholars know that food was one of the things that was used to mark out differences between Spaniards and Jews and Muslims during the Reconquista. So which just to remind people that for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Iberian Peninsula had been inhabited by religious faiths. Not, so there was, there was a sort of Christian north, but there was also a Jewish presence throughout the peninsula and also a, a number of, of Islamic states. And the Reconquista, the Reconquest, was a process that was embarked on by a kind of resurgent Catholic or Christian, we, we should say, um, northern Spain that culminated in 1492 in the defeat of the last um, separate Moorish kingdoms, a, a, a co chronological coincidence with Columbus's arrival in the Americas that um, didn't pass um, unobserved and uncommented upon by, by Christian, by Catholic Spanish writers during the period. You saw this as you know, a confluence of divine forces kicking out the, the Muslims, expanding Spain's Catholic territories, and also was then accompanied by an expulsion of, of the Jewish population who didn't convert. So it's well known that food was a marker of religious difference during this period. And in fact, when people were hauled before the Inquisition in the 16th century and accused of practicing Judaism, for example, covertly, as, as um, often happened, 
One of the things that the discussions would often revolve around were whether people were eating pork. And so the people who are dragged in before the Inquisition would say, I don't know what you're talking about. I eat pork all the time. Bacon, I eat it daily. You know, what's, what's you know, I eat all of these Catholic foods. And the Inquisitors would say, well, you know, we've got this report from somebody and we're not going to tell you who, but saying that they saw you refuse to eat some ham at an inn. And can you just elaborate on this? And they say, okay, well, yeah, okay, it's true. I didn't eat the ham, but that's because I wasn't feeling very well. And, you know, I normally eat ham all the time. So pork in particular was a really good symbol of, of Christian identity because neither, neither Jews nor, nor Muslims are supposed to, to eat pork. But I, so, so food was this marker of, of confessional difference, but I was also sort of interested in whether this was believed, whether these dietary practices were believed to leave any mark on the body of these Christians and Jews and Muslims. And so I spent a bit of time trying to look at whether anybody was arguing that, let's say, in Christian Spain, let's, let's say that Jews looked the way they did because of what they ate. And I was Interested but not surprised to find that there was actually quite a lot of discussion from Catholic writers coming up with um, stereotypical, which they explained in part through reference to the Jewish diet. And they would say, well, the Jewish body has these features because they eat an awful lot of oily food. And that creates certain types of humors to grow in them. So I don't know if that was what you had in mind. Yeah, no, no, that's really great. I think because... Um a lot of those that fits in, I think, in some ways with the literature around how maybe ideas of race start to form in the new world based on some of these old world conceptions. And, and, and we can get at that a little bit later in the talk, but that's something that you, you're playing with in the book, certainly. Um, but let's, let's kind of just uh, get to that step by step. Uh, so let's take some of those ideas about that you're discussing around food and its effect on the body uh, and maybe its effect on how uh, Spaniards are, are, are thinking about non-Christians or other people. And then uh, if we can bring in the New World context, um, so how does, how does food, or how is food used to denigrate Native Americans or at least to, to think about Native American societies? And then if you could bring in some of the, I mean, religion's obviously really important with this as well. And so if you could talk about how that influences those perceptions. So when Europeans traveled to the Americas, and, in, and also traveled down the coast of West Africa, as they were increasingly doing in the same, the same decades as these voyages of you know, um, exploration over the Atlantic. They, Europeans were encountering, in some cases, peoples whom they had really not imagined ever existed, and in other cases, peoples with whom they had been in some kind of contact um, so, you know, very different groups of people. But in all cases, Europeans wanted to come up with some kind of story that made sense of where these people came from, how they fit into the story of where all people came from that Europeans largely embraced, and also how they could explain the similarities and differences they perceived between their bodies and these other people's bodies. So this was a topic of some interest to Europeans at the time. And one of the really crucial questions was, how did these people get to where they were and how did they come to look so different as Europeans thought they did? Although they didn't necessarily think they looked different in the ways that we might have imagined, but they focused on certain physical features as well as certain characteristics that they saw as, as typical of the personality of these new peoples. How do they come to be so different from Europeans? Given that, as all good Catholics had to affirm, everybody 
was the descendant of the same ancestral pair of Adam and Eve. I mean, everybody at the end were, were, were distant relations. Everybody had originated in the Garden of Eden, right? And that was not really up for discussion. So some sort of process of change must have resulted to take people who had once all been um, very similar. They had all been um, the sons of Adam and Eve to make them look very different. And not surprisingly, the models that Europeans drew upon to explain this were the same models that they drew upon to explain physical difference in general, to explain why they looked a bit different from their next door neighbor or why, you know, people who lived in Scotland were different from people in Andalusia. That's to say these same humoral models that explain that the physical body and its characteristic personality were the result of its humoral blends, which were themselves in constant dialogue with the environment, with the diet, with the lifestyle that that body led. And so ultimately, Europeans explained the physical differences that they identified between themselves and Amerindians with reference to this humoral body that would naturally evolve and undergo change if subjected to a very different environmental context. Environmental being understood in the broad sense, not just to mean the weather, but the larger ambient culture in which the body lived. So Europeans, for example, were really interested in why Amerindian, this is a topic of enormous discussion, not sort of for no reason, but because beards, particularly in 16th century Spain, were really important to symbolizing manhood. And in fact, the ability to produce facial hair was linked directly to the ability to produce semen. So a really flourishing beard was a good sign that you were really a proper man, and a lack of facial hair was a bit worrying. And so Europeans were sort of interested. Amerindian men didn't seem to have the same kinds of wonderful beards that the Spaniards were so proud of. And they wrote about this, and they said, well, okay, where do their beards go? It's because they, these indigenous bodies had traveled from the old world through some mysterious process that nobody could really agree on how they got to the Americas. But be that as it may, there they were in this different environment, eating foods that were no long, no, not only different from the foods that these old world bodies had been used to, but where everybody agreed kind of inferior, less nourishing they were living in a harsher environment. They were working very hard. There was no kind of culture. They you know, slept outdoors, etc. And little by little, their bodies changed in a way that was described in terms of humors, in a way that reduced and reduced and reduced those Amerindians men's ability to produce facial hair, which was terrifying for Spaniards because there they were in the same environment. Yeah. And one of the things I think is so interesting about that aspect is, is there's this tension, it seems like, between what you're describing about the the new world environment being perhaps denigrating or sort of debilitating for individuals, um, but also this desire to promote uh, the West Indies and to promote the new world as the site of exploration. And so I wonder how those, how does that tension get resolved in terms of the, the sense that, you know, this is a, a sort of difficult climate, yet it's a climate that needs to be colonized. Well, that also is a really interesting thing, I think, that the the question of the well, there are two aspects to that. One really is the question about the 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 colonizing imperative, if we want to call it that, the sort of drive to colonize, and and the other is the new world environment. So, to deal with the second thing first, the new world environment. The, the first thing to say about that, I think, is that although within this humoral vision of the world, 
some environments were inherently better than other environments. It was sort of agreed upon that there were certain damp, swampy, soggy places were probably not that good. So there was a kind of hierarchy within humoralism. Certain types of environments were just probably better than others. However, there was a sort of countervailing element of, of humoralism, which said that whatever your body is used to is best for your body. And if your body, if you've grown up in a swamp, in some ways you do best to stay in the swamp. That moving out of the swamp is going to be really stressful to your body. And it will subject your body to enormous sudden transformations that it, your body might just not be able to cope with. So one thing is that although there is this sort of sense of some places are better than others, there's also this sense that some things, some places suit certain people better than others. So part of the concern that Spaniards had about coming to the Americas was independently of whether the New World environment was good or bad. It was just insofar as it was different from Spain that was going to be stressful to the old world body. So you needed to manage that in some way. You needed to try to manage this change. And that was, again, something that people discussed very explicitly, how to sort of acclimatize your body to this new space on the one hand. On the other hand, there was actually much less agreement that the American environment was terrible. There was much less agreement of this than the scholarship on the topic has perhaps led us to believe. So there's an awful lot of discussion about how certain places have a terrible climate, certain places in the Americas, certain very hot, tropical, lowland places in the Caribbean are terrible and bad and, you know, are just awful environments. Maybe okay for the native peoples who live there because they're used to it, but very bad for Europeans. So there's a certain amount of that. But what I found equally striking was that if you looked at, for example, letters that were sent by settlers in the 16th century back to Spain, Far more often than they complained about the climate, they praised it. And they said, oh, it's lovely here. Lima, a place now not celebrated for its delightful climate. Lima has the most paradisical climate in the world, it is a little garden of Eden. Mexico City has the most benign climate in the entire world. There was, and if you look at where Spaniards settled, actually, except for places where there was a strong commercial or trading imperative to be in you know, hot coastal regions, for example, Spaniards settled in places that they thought had a nice climate. So they didn't, they didn't see, I would argue that, that European settlers did not see the New World's environment as the hostile place that some of the scholarship on this has led us to believe they did. Yeah, and one of the things I liked about the book is that you, you complicate that idea about the, the environment and you sort of say, well, it's not, we need to look beyond just the fact that there was, there were these complaints about the environment that um, because of this aspect of, of hum, uh, humoralism, that food is obviously a central part of the equation about how you consider the environment. Um, and so you, you talk about how there are all these different categories of sort of what are the, what are the Amerindian foods and what are the Spanish foods and, and what kinds of attributes those have. So I wonder if you could just sort of briefly, I know it's very complicated, but if you could just kind of go through um, how the Spanish thought about their foods compared to the New World foods and what kind of connotations they had between the two. Yeah, so I thought that the, in some ways my whole approach, my whole interest in this project grew out of a single sentence in a 
16th century chronicle by a Jesuit writer um, called Jose de Acosta, who wrote a very, very interesting, I think it's called The Natural and Moral History of the Indies, which he wrote about 1590, which is sort of what it sounds like. And he said at one point, he had a long, he has a long section where he talks about nature, and he talks about plants, and he talks about the foods that native peoples eat. And he has this one, I thought, really paradoxical sentence in which he says, in this chapter, I'm going to explain what are the breads of the Indians, or what are the breads of the Indies, and what the Indians use in place of bread. I remember this, and I was like, this doesn't make any sense. You know, what does he mean he's going to talk about what are the breads of the Amerindians and what they use instead of bread? It is clear that bread means two different things in that sentence, right? And so that's what I got, got interested in bread and the idea, the metaphor of bread for food. In fact, my, my file on my, my computer for this, which um, where I was where, when I was writing this book, is called Bread. That's what I called it. <laughs> and I originally wanted to call this book, not, in fact, not originally, but you know, right up until they talked me out of it at the publisher. I really wanted to call it Land Without Bread. <laughs> That's what I thought would be. They said it sounds like a travel log. So that, that was so much for that. But so it became, it was really clear that bread was really a crucial structuring element of a meal for Europeans and actually also for Amerindians as well. And so I was interested in sort of thinking about what are the foods that are breads and what are the foods that are not breads? And that was kind of the crucial division, I think, for Europeans in making sense of other people's foods. So there, were, there was a, the idealized Iberian diet, which was really built around bread, among other, I mean, fundamentally. There's a beautiful description from, from a bit later, from the 18th century, from who described when he arrived on the Caribbean coast of Colombia, he was welcomed. He and his brethren came off the ship, and they were welcomed at a big feast, and he lists all of the things they were given, a roast fowl and sweet potatoes and little cakes made with maize and huge arrays of food, and he lists it all. And he says, but we did not know how to eat without bread. And he, was, and he said, and then I realized that bread was food to somebody who had been brought up like me. And he writes, and I remember that when I was in Cats, before I was about to depart, one of the other members of his order, he writes, he writes, said to me, Brother Juan, you are going to the Indies. God keep you from losing sight of bread. <laughs> it just beautifully encapsulates the, the central importance of bread. So there was bread, and then there was kind of everything else. I mean, close to bread was also wine. Wine was also crucial. And it's perhaps obvious that bread and wine are also not just, you know, any foods, but they're the foods that in the communion come body and blood of Bread isn't just anything. It's a symbol of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And I, I really like that aspect of how you were, were showing just how central food was. And, and um, uh, the, the complication, too, that you mentioned is these kind of longstanding Christian beliefs that only wheat bread and only uh, grape wine could be used for communion. And that this creates a problem, obviously, when trying to convert Amerindians because those things are not available in the New World. Uh, and so does that factor into maybe uh, Spanish ideas about uh, uh, how how confident they feel about the imperial project? 
Well, yeah. So, I mean, I was sort of interested then in these tensions about how to represent Christianity to Native people. So I spent some time reading confessional manuals and um, doctrinal texts that explain how to translate the Lord's Prayer into various indigenous languages, how to translate the communion mass into various indigenous languages. And we're sort of looking at the tensions between, the, on the one hand, the desire to make a sort of parallel to say, okay, a tortilla is really just like bread. So there are all these lovely translations of the Lord's Prayer that say things like, you know, God you know, give us this day our daily tortillas, right? Where instead of saying they're kind of the same. But then, on the other hand, this repeated insistence in doctrinal texts that tortillas are not translations of the communion service, they tend, the, the texts tend to say something along the lines of, and then Jesus took the real bread made out of real Castilian wheat, and he took the real wine made out of real and he did this and that, right? So there's a sort of, on the one hand, assimilationist language that says your bread is like our bread, it's all kind of bread, on the one hand, and this other very strong discourse that says your bread is totally and utterly unlike our bread, and it can never become like our bread. And I think that was, uh, to my mind, that kind of, that's, that's a metaphor. That's a metaphor for the this colonial conundrum that you were alluding to before, the sort of imperatives, the contradictory imperatives of colonialism, that you want people to become like you. You want to justify colonialism on the grounds of a civilizing mission that will bring better behavior and better ways of living and bodies to the people you're colonizing, but also this insistence that it's never possible, that it cannot possibly happen. The colonized people never, ever, ever, ever can become like the, the colonizers. Mm-hmm. I think some of you that in this very visceral way. And, and you, I, I really like the way you end the book on that note about um, th- that there's, when Native Americans begin incorporating these Spanish diets, it creates this strange reality of, well, you know, we, we insisted that food was the central part about how we define ourselves, but now they're incorporating those foods. And so how do we actually push that difference? And especially because you end the book around 1700, that has even more importance. Um, uh, I wonder too, uh, in terms of um, this idea, one of the things you kind of mentioned is that uh, you, the new world environment has an effect on the way that the Spanish see the, their ability to grow old world crops um, and so did it matter if Spanish food was grown in the Americas? Was that seen as something that maybe compromised its Spanishness? Did that, was it seen as kind of a, a lesser form of Spanish food? Um, or, or, did, or was it just that food had these intrinsic qualities to them? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, that's something I didn't explore as much as I think would have been worth to have done in the book, which is that question about the influence of the environment on foodstuffs. Because in this human world, everything is influenced by the the ambient context in which it grows. So food, too, takes on different qualities. In fact, there was lots of discussion about how the same process of transformation that affected people who moved from one environment to another also affected plants. So if you took a plant and you dug it up and then you moved it down the road to another and planted it somewhere else, 
People say, oh, well, of course, will it grow as well? Oh, it's all little hard to tell. You have to climatize it. So peoples and plants were, were sort of the same. I mean, they were subject to the same forces in a way. And that therefore meant that when you grew something in one place, it wasn't. It didn't necessarily have the same virtue as if you grew it somewhere else. But I think I should have paid more attention to that. What I did oh, think about, <laughs> yeah, what? This what? Is, it was a, a rogue question, that's all. That was not, uh, yeah, it was... Um, I think I was thinking about it in terms of the Colombian exchange, too. And, and I, I was wondering if, um, you know, was there any kind of uh, American crop or sort of New World crop that utterly lost its New World attributes in the Spanish mind by 1700? I mean, we think now about sort of how potatoes and tomatoes have, have, have lost maybe some of their, their geographic origins. Um, had that happened by... The, the sort of 16th and 17th centuries that, that maybe certain American crops were already being incorporated into the Spanish diet and considered to be Spanish? Um, or, or did that not quite happen at that point? Yeah, that's in some ways, that's actually what I'm working on now. So oh, I'm looking sure. at what happens to these foods when they travel out of the new world in this process that people call the Colombian exchange. So yeah, certain foods became sort of you know, normalized very quickly. In fact, the same Jose de Acosta who said he was going to talk about what breads Amerindians had and what they had given that they didn't have any bread. He also commented in, in 1590 or so, he said, oh, they have this kind of pepper, which is very spicy, but it's such a well-known thing in Spain. I'm not even going to bother to describe it. So there, there are lots of comments like that from the 16th This So there's, you know, it's nothing surprising. You know, it grows all over Andalusia, whatever. And so by the 18th century, actually, potatoes were often, they, were, they had names in Spain that linked them to particular parts of Spain. So potato potatoes were, were um, you know, linked to, to they, were, they were called patatas manchegas, and they were linked to, to La Mancha. And sweet potatoes were linked to Malaga. And so there was, they were sort of given geographical designators that link them to the Iberian Peninsula, not not as you know, not to the New World. There's a lot of very nice writing about how how maize kept a sort of exotic label for some centuries after it was introduced into Europe. And it was given names like Saracen wheat or Moorish corn or things like that. That even if they didn't link it to the New World, marked it as sort of exotic. Moorish, Saracen, you know, foreign, Turkish. But even so, it was still being very widely consumed all across Europe by the, the 18th century. So lots of these foods got naturalized very quickly. And if you read some of the 18th century Spanish histories about the potato, they kind of even forget where it came from. And they sort of say, oh, yeah, it's always been around in the Iberian Peninsula. We've always eaten potatoes. They sort of forgot that, you know, they themselves brought it to, to Europe. That's great. And maybe we can kind of uh, close in a few minutes on, on some, a little bit more on that new project. But, but maybe kind of uh, uh, to start to wrap up a little bit on the book. Um, so, so one of the questions that I, we alluded to earlier that um, I think you, you try to tackle with a lot of um, sophistication is, is, or at least without kind of using these blanket terms, is, is how this idea about food uh, and race might have mixed together in this in this uh, imperial project. And so, you know, you're, you're sort of cautious about saying too much about how strongly racial ideas were forming in these early years. And so I wonder if, if you 
um, could just give a general sense about how you see this this aspect of race developing alongside this idea of food, because I think I think it's an important contribution to that that larger historiographic debate about maybe how racism emerges. Yeah, I mean that was something that was really what, as you said, the last part of the book tried to think about. And there's a so there's a huge scholarship on when did race begin, right? When did your when did Europeans, for example, start to think in in terms of race? And that that debate, which is really interesting, and in, in, you know the chronology moves backwards and forwards, and there are people who say, oh no, it's race is an 18th or 19th century phenomenon, and then there are other people who say, oh no, it really began with the voyages of discovery in the 15th century, and there are other people who say, oh no, it goes. These, this debate is sort of premised on a particular model of how the body works. And what I was really interested in doing was sort of getting getting away from this question of when did race begin, but rather to think about what is how do people understand the body? And this this debate about when did racial thinking start? Was it, you know, the the you know, one of the evil offspring of overseas colonization? You know, was it a deep-rooted European thing? This is always these ideas are always premised on a vision that says that racial thinking is the following. It's a belief that there's certain physical characteristics that are embedded in the body and are inherited from parent to child and are immutable and are not simply a cultural attribute that you can change. And that's the sort of general model that people use when they sort of say, this is when race starts to happen. They start about this sort of embedded vision that's inherited and doesn't change without, you know, the input of, of you know, other quote-unquote races. And what seemed to me really clear from this early modern idea about the body is this fluid thing, was that this sort of way of talking doesn't make sense. This division between immutable fixed inherited bodily characteristics on the one hand and flexible fluid cultural characteristics on the other that just doesn't make sense that's not how people thought about things because what you ate affected your body and you know how you moved your body through space and what kinds of practices you carried out affected your body so there isn't a and indeed as i was saying before what a father ate right before he made love would affect the quality of his semen and therefore would affect the quality of a child he might engender. There were there were health textbooks that would tell you what to eat if you wanted to have a son. If you wanted to engender a son, eat certain foods, and that'll make sure you you know you so even inheritance is subject to diet, right? So I, I was sort of into, I wanted to Okay, if, we're, if we have a particular model of what, what race is, then you can say, okay, well, this period doesn't exactly look like race, but it's clearly a very hierarchical society in which physical differences are meaningful and are in, you know, embedded in broader ideological structures. And so at the end, I was sort of saying, look, let's, let's, let's rephrase this whole debate so we think really about how people made sense of embodiment. What did people, how did people think their bodies and other people's bodies operated. So that was what I was really trying to, to, to get at. And so whether you want to call these divisions racial or not, is it's it's fine with you know it's it's fine with me. It depends on what you how you want to think of that category. And if you have a category that isn't based on immutable inherited immutable characteristics, then you have no problem in calling this world that I'm describing a world marked out by race. If you think it is about these 
inherited sort of quote unquote scientific ideas that are we're so familiar with from the 19th century, and maybe it doesn't look a lot like race. But that's not really the right question. The right question is how did people construct hierarchical distinctions of the body that they had? Yeah, and, and I like. I mean, that's really the central part of of your your book is this aspect of embodiment and how um, how it really affects so many ways that the um, the Spanish see the Native Americans and 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 again, as you mentioned, that it's it's constantly in flux, it's constantly changing. Um, so I, I think that's a really good caution to sort of uh, keep in mind when you're studying this period. Um, you, you sort of hinted at it earlier uh, about this this new project around kind of how foods travel. Would you want to say just a little bit more about that? Yeah, I've embarked on this, this is a somewhat quixotic project on a kind of global history of the potato, which, which I've been working on for a while. And I've, I've got really interested in how potatoes travel around the world and why in the 18th century, as appears to have been the case, um, political economists, priests, statespeople, um, writers of all sorts, philosophers, all kinds of different public actors in the late 18th century. Why it was that this range of different people, all, almost everybody that I can think of, wrote a text on why potatoes were great and how if only ordinary people ate more potatoes, everybody would be better off in most particularly the state. And the poor people too, if they ate more potatoes, why don't they eat potatoes? There was this sort of huge body. I was talking to somebody and I was saying, wrote about potatoes and, and she said hmm, hmm she said I work on France she said hmm Voltaire never wrote about potatoes so I thought aha okay this and then fighting words so I spent some time and you know not very long was required to turn up that Voltaire too wrote letters about potatoes and he said potatoes and he thinks they're great and people should eat them so I got sort of interested in what that was about and so this project, which I will I will be very short about, so as not to be incredibly long and boring, is kind of about what potatoes represent to visions of the state, and what it means to tell people to choose to eat different foods. So I'm in some ways what I'm what I'm what the potato project is about. It's a kind of it's a prehistory of food security and food sovereignty. I suppose you could say, built around the potato. Well, that sounds great. Um, well, I, I really enjoyed the book. Uh, I think it gives lots of new ways to think about how, you know, imperialism uh, uh, was lived in, in these first few centuries of Spanish colonization. Um, and I really appreciate you joining us today. It was a great pleasure. <laughs>